Now, we mentioned at the beginning of service that it's uh, the first Sunday of Advent, and, um, and so you might be wondering, well, are we going to have four sermons on the birth of Christ? But um, the Advent themes and readings come from uh, the lectionary readings. So the church has followed uh, the church calendar and has different themes that follow the life of Christ and the, uh, the Trinitarian life of the early church. So the incarnation of Jesus and the coming of Pentecost and some really key themes to our Christian faith. And so uh, Advent season typically starts off thinking about the second coming of Christ or the next Advent, which is Christ's return. You think, well, why? Why would we, in a time when we should be talking about the birth of Christ, be thinking about Christ's return and judgment? Well, one of the reasons is because, number one, we don't want to pretend like we're waiting for Christ's birth. Christ was born 2,000 years ago. We're not waiting. People at that time were. But we are waiting for Christ to return. We don't know when that return will be. But a lot of the readings um, in the lectionary around the church calendar for this time of Advent talk about a time when Christ will establish his kingdom and justice throughout all the earth. And so that's what our passage is about this morning. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Advent, I just want to give us a definition. Advent comes from, it's an old English word, and it comes from the Latin word adventus, meaning arrival. So just as people in the first century were expecting Christ, the Messiah's arrival as a child, we're also expecting his arrival in the next Advent. And during this time of Advent, we hear the prophecies of the Messiah's coming addressed to us, as we mentioned, people who are waiting for the second coming. And um, we sing songs like, O come, uh, O come, Emmanuel, O come, thou long-expected Jesus, he comes with clouds descending. All these songs that help us to think about his coming, not just the first and the second coming, but the fact that Christ comes to us over and over and over again in our faith. In our, in our life and as we, as we learn of Jesus and as we grow in the knowledge of God and in grace, he continues to come to us. You could say as we grow more and more, he comes to us more and more and more. So as we wait for the second coming of Christ, we can relate in some ways to what people in the first century may have felt. The difference with them, of course, is they knew something about the timing of the birth of Christ they were counting down Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. So they knew they were in the, in the target zone. We don't have a clue when the Lord Jesus will return. It could be soon. It could be many, many centuries or even millennia in the future. We just don't know. But in Advent, something, not just someone, is arriving. And that something is the kingdom of God. So Jesus he didn't just arrive on the scene, but he brought something, and that something that he brought was the kingdom of God. So I want us to look at a passage this morning in Isaiah 2 that talks about a time when the kingdom of God is established on the earth. Let's read Isaiah 2, 1 through 21. The word of God. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord 
shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, for you have rejected your people. The house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners, which means they shake hands and make agreements with the children of foreigners, pagans, idolaters. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. You can tell as we read through the text, the person being talked to, it's moving back and forth from the first, second, and third person. It's addressing the hearers, and then it's addressing God, and then addressing the speaker. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, a judgment day. Against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord And from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for this, your holy word. Illuminate our hearts now by your spirit that we may be transformed by it. This word of hope and this word of humility about the future. Father, we pray that you would convict us and convince us of his truth. Bless us to leave different than the way we came in here. 
We pray this in your triune name. Amen. Well, when we look at a passage like this, it makes us ask the question, where do we as modern people find our motivation for living? What are the things that gets us out of bed in the morning? What motivates us? Well, it's certainly the present. Concerns about the present, right? We're thinking about our lives right now. We typically don't live and breathe and think about our lives with a future orientation. We're thinking about the present. The future kind of threatens to rob us of what we have or we hope to have. And we trust in God in a way, um, but more than we realize, our sense of stability is not always grounded in God alone, but in comfort and in our possessions, in the things we have right now. And if there's nothing, and this is the problem with that, if there's nothing beyond the status quo, if there's nothing beyond our present lives, nothing we look forward to, well, then we respond to earthly loss with rage and despair. In other words, if there's nothing that we're looking forward to in the future, when the present falls apart, it rattles us. It shakes us to our core. And world events should right now, right about now, be forcing us to think about the future. There are all types of things that threaten the future for us. There are terrorists who are plotting to kill us. There's um, the growing, increasing threat with North Korea. Um, I saw something the other day about a supervolcano in Yosemite. Has anyone seen that? Supervolcano in Yosemite. Supposedly, if it exploded, it would be the largest volcanic explosion the Earth has ever seen. Cover the Earth with ash for years and possibly destroy humanity as we know it. Um, I don't know if they put those shows out there for ratings or if they're serious, but you know, it can scare you. It can definitely make you think about the future. And there should be things that get us and force us to think about the future. And the point of all of this is. If we're left to ourselves, to our own power, we recognize quickly that we're really defenseless against the troubles of life. There's really not a lot we can do. There's nothing I can do, nothing you can do about a volcanic you know, eruption in, in, uh, in uh, Yosemite or the growing conflagration with North Korea. There's nothing that we can do. But it's in these moments when we think about how the th- future threatens us that Christ comes to us. Through him, our losses can be, well, like pathways for hope. For us, we're privileged people, right, living in the Western world. The supreme privilege of life is that when we find that God himself is really all we need, right, we're privileged people, right? We recognize that. We live better than most people on the planet. America is a wealthy nation, especially us here in this part of St. Louis. You know, we live pretty well. But the supreme joy is recognizing that God ultimately is all we need because everything we have right now can be taken from us in an instant. And so our hope and our trust and the joy that we ought to experience is ultimately not in the present, but in the future. This is what Isaiah is getting at. And he invites us to join him. This is Isaiah. And this unflinching realism about all these false hopes... He says to us, essentially, we need to relocate 
our hope in the future, our happiness in the future, a future that doesn't yet exist except in the promises of God. The future is not a blank slate like we may think. There is human responsibility. There is human freedom. But God has so mapped out the courses of history that God is going to bring a day, ultimately, of judgment and justice and righteousness. And so Isaiah is trying to get us to think about a future that doesn't yet exist, but is certain in the promises of God. He invites us to put our hope in that future. And when we put our hope in that future, the future that God has promised, we get the present also. We don't discard and dispense with the present. God doesn't ask us to pretend like our current present lives, our contemporary existence has no meaning. It does. But what he's saying is, is ultimately, my promises for you and this world is what's going to make the difference in your heart when it comes to hope and despair and all of those things. And so if we look to the future with confidence in God's promises, we get the present. If we only look at the present, our present circumstances, and ignore what God says is coming, we lose both. We lose the future and the present. Well, in verse 1 of Isaiah's second chapter, it marks this literary connection between the first chapter and the rest of the, the books of Isaiah. There's 66 Books of uh, 66 chapters in Isaiah. And what follows in chapter 2, which is what we just read through, is this transforming power of hope and humility. Transforming power of hope and humility. Now, the question that looms over the text for us this morning is why does Isaiah link hope and humility together? Well, for one, because we use the idol of self-advancement to stabilize ourselves. But God can replace our fear and pride with hope and humility. As we come alive to God's promised future, we dethrone our idols, and the Lord is exalted in us. So every time something that takes the place of God is brought low, well, God is exalted God is glorified in us every time something that we're holding so dearly to in the place of God instead of trusting in him. Well, every time something like that shatters, well, it gives us the opportunity to shift our trust and put our hope in him. And this is important for us because every one of us in this room have things that are snatched from us, hopes and dreams and plans that crumble and disintegrate, things that we hoped would happen prayers maybe that we felt went unanswered. And all of it is a way that God is trying to give us a hope that's grounded in him and at the same time humble us. He's challenging our fear and he's challenging our pride. First, let's look at the power of hope. It says in Isaiah 2 and 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And be lifted up above the hills. He uses this word latter days. Come to pass in the latter days. For Isaiah, this is kind of a play on words. In fact, it harkens back to Genesis 1, in the beginning. So here's latter days, in the beginning. And if you're a Hebrew reader of the text, you're reading the Bible in Hebrew, which Isaiah's original recipients of his book would have been, phonetically, the word beginning and latter are very, very similar. It's almost like a play on words. So in Hebrew, 
the words beginning and latter. And what Isaiah is doing is he's looking through from the beauty of the beginning through the wreckage of history all the way forward to the glory of consummation. He's starting at the beginning of creation and he's looking through history through its wreckage and troubles, some of which we're experiencing right now in a broken and fallen world. And he's looking to a time when history will be consumed at the very end. And what does he foresee? What does Isaiah foresee? He sees true worship, the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, covering the earth while all the religions of man are humbled into nothing. You know, in those days, shrines and temples were exalted up on mountaintops and hills. If you go through the ancient world, you see this all over the place. In fact, if you look at pictures of Greece, one of the most famous pictures of Greece is the Acropolis in Athens, where the Greek Parthenon, that temple, in fact, it's this iconic image. I thought about putting it in our slides this morning, but I didn't want to distract us. But if, if you see the image, you'll recognize it immediately. And it's just one example of how temples and houses of worship were exalted on hills and mountains because, well, they were closer to heaven in the popular imagination. So you put your house of worship up on a hill because it's closer to heaven. But what's interesting is God chooses this humble little hill, Mount Zion, which is really not impressive by the standards of the day, right? It's God puts his, his temple on Mount Zion. God chooses this measly little hilltop in the land of Israel where he's to be worshiped. And it wasn't impressive, And you know, today, the church is rarely impressive in the minds of man, in the minds of men. The church isn't very impressive. False churches that look a lot like the world impress people, but the true church of the living God doesn't impress the world much. The counterfeit churches impress, but true churches don't impress the world much, at least not visually. But in the latter days, the nations, Isaiah is saying, will abandon their worldview and ideologies and will gladly give to the church their esteem as the world's leader in worship. This is what Isaiah is envisioning, a day when the church becomes the leader in true worship. Look at what it says in the next verse. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Uh, Ray Ortland in his commentary on Isaiah says that there's this image of this anti-gravitational anomaly, this human river flowing uphill to worship God. Beautiful, beautiful imagery. I, don't, I wouldn't have got that from the text. But he says there's this beautiful image of people flowing upward, a river flowing up against gravity to go up to the mountain of the Lord to worship God. This miracle of nations, he says, not by force, but by their own will one day, hurrying to worship God and learn of his ways. And he goes on to say this started 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. It continues in Christian missions, and it will be consummated one day with an overflowing river of conversions to Christ. 
You know, sometimes a pessimism that we see in our world around us can inform what we think about God's power for the future. But Isaiah's vision for the future is of all the nations flowing to the mountain of God to worship him in true worship. When the true worship of God, when the gospel of Christ is established over all the earth, and when the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the rivers and the waters cover the sea. And he makes this statement, Isaiah, in verse 3, he says, out of Zion. And you know what that means? It means nowhere else. It's an exclusive claim about the gospel. Out of Zion means nowhere else. Zion only. The location of God's people, the church where the gospel is preached and taught, and where Christ alone is worshipped as Lord. Now, that's not a popular message for our day and age today, right? Because what we hear today is, well, all religions are valid and all ways equally lead to God. But tell me which religion makes this promise in the next verse. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And get this, they're going to beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. What religion makes that claim? Neither shall they learn war anymore. Listen, we recognize that it's the principle of this passage, not, not, not the words that, are, that matter here, right? We don't fight wars with swords anymore. We don't, you know, um, farm with plowshares. I mean, some people may, but we don't usually. We've got big mechanized machines that, that farm for us. The point is that there's going to come a day when all of the mechanized military might of the nations, all that metal and steel, and all those machines of warfare will be melted down for humanitarian purposes. That day is coming, and that's exactly what's being promised here. They're going to beat their swords into plowshares, and nation will not lift up sword against nation anymore. Neither will they learn war anymore. And the idea is there's coming a day when not only will there be war, but people won't even think of war or making war because Christ will bring peace in that day when his kingdom is fully established and made manifest in the earth. And only Christ can do that. Buddha can't do that. Muhammad can't do that. I mean, you just go down the the long list of other would-be prophets that promise the world the peace that only can come through Jesus Christ And you know something? It's a guarantee. This is the the promised future that God is asking us to believe in. He's asking us to believe in a future that may not look like the present. See, this this is why ultimately you can't let your heart and your mind be informed by the current political climate in the world. I mentioned earlier about things that threaten us like terrorists or North Korea or a super volcano in Yosemite. And listen... We don't know. Some of those things do threaten us currently, but the idea is that the future is secure because God is the one in control of it sovereignly. The genius of military innovation will be used for life-enriching purposes. The day is coming. That's God's promise, and that's our only hope. And what is the power of that hope right now? The next verse, in verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk, In the light of the Lord. 
O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And verse 5 here echoes verse 3, what Isaiah says, and it resembles this idea of the nations when they say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that we may walk in his paths. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The difference is the prepositions to and in. The nations come to the worship of God. Believers walk in the light of the Lord. In other words, let the promises of God have their full impact on us right now. Let our hearts right now be transformed by things that have not yet been fulfilled. Let us be the kind of people that live our lives in the hope and certainty that the promises of God will come true as we stare down threats in the present. That's the beauty and hope of Advent as we prepare our hearts for a future day when God's kingdom will be fully manifested on the earth, even though we don't see it with our eyes right now. And then secondly, so there's the power of hope, but secondly, there's the power of humility. We need hope, but we also need humility, right? Isaiah the prophet, he's no dreamy idealist. He sees human pride as a great impediment. So it's one thing for me to say, let our hearts be lifted up with the promise of the future, but that'd be incomplete if we didn't allow our hearts to be challenged, the pride in our hearts. Because the things that keep us from there, from that place, the things that keep our hearts and our minds from being oriented to the things of God is pride. Pride. We struggle with pride. We wrestle with it. Isaiah discerns pride among God's people. Pride in the world and pride in the worship of idols. And so first, there's this pride among God's people, verses 6 through 9. And the key words here are full and filled. They're repeated three times in verses 7 and 8. The church can be full of worldly wisdom, filled with money, filled with power, filled with idols. Yes, the church can be. Filled with everything but the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we have no appetite for God because we've filled ourselves up on the things of this world. I get excited about reading the Bible. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to pray. We fill ourselves up with everything. It doesn't really satisfy. I know it's an inappropriate uh, or just a, a failing example, but you know, you eat, you're hungry and you eat candy before dinner, and it ruins your appetite, but it doesn't really hit the spot. You know, you don't feel like you've really eaten. In fact, it can kind of make you sick. When we fill ourselves up on the things of this world, it doesn't really satisfy our souls, but it fills us up enough to where, for a moment, we're not thinking about God because we've been filled up by something else. We fill our lives with ideals, with comforts, with false ideals. And it's because we feel empty within that we lose this sense for God. We lose our appetite for God. We lose our hunger for God. And as Isaiah arrives at this shocking conclusion about his own generation, this is what he says in verse 9. He says, so people are humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a sharp message. When we fill, our things with, fill ourselves with things other than God, we're not enriched, we're brought low. And there can be a point of no return where people, where people are so filled 
with the wrong things and so empty of a sense of God that forgiveness becomes unthinkable and God moves on. He says in verse 6, you have rejected your people, Isaiah says in verse 6. And it's not that God doesn't love them, but the idea, it's not that God doesn't love them anymore, but it's the idea that if any generation of his people, not talking about individual souls, but I'm talking about a generation of his people along the way become full of pride, God wouldn't be doing them any favors by visiting them with blessing. It would only reinforce this idea of self-salvation. And that's the last thing God wants us to feel is a sense of self-salvation, that we can save ourselves. And so first, there needs to be this emptying, an emptying of the fullness that we feel. And Isaiah understands this. He understands that the proud, self-sufficient nation of Israel can become witness to the greatness of God only when she's been reduced to helplessness by his just judgment and then restored to life by his unmerited grace. And that's what happens with us, is God often brings us low, brings us to a place of helplessness, because sometimes it's only in that place where our own sense of self-sufficiency has emptied out of us that we're open and hungry and willing to accept that unmerited grace the power of God. And maybe you find yourself there this morning. Maybe you find yourself where the things that you're holding dear are falling right through your fingertips. Maybe you find yourself in a place where you've been brought low, where you've been made helpless by God. Some area of your life that you once had control over, now you have no control over. Listen, for a child of God, those kinds of things don't happen in vain. God wants to bring us low that we can look to him. The world has a standard by which they judge blessedness. And it's that sense of fullness where they have everything. People look around, they say, look at all the things I have. I don't really need God. You know, if there is a God, thanks. Actually, that can sometimes be the biggest impediment because it exalts our hearts and pride to think we don't need God. And that's what Isaiah is challenging in the ancient nation of Israel here. See, the worst thing that can happen to us isn't the loss of retirement investments, the loss of our health, the loss of face. The worst thing that can happen to us is the loss in the delight of the glory of God alone. When we cease to delight in God's glory, that's actually the scary thing. Not the loss of our health or the loss of our possessions or the loss of our retirement accounts or the loss of reputation. When we stop, when we lose, when we stop uh, glorying in God's presence and power and grace and majesty, that's really where loss comes in. That's really when we should worry as a people. What idol are you holding on to this morning? What thing is being taken from you that you don't want to let go of that maybe God is trying to empty you of so he can fill you up with his power and grace and glory? Paul the Apostle said, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. 
Is there something you've recently lost? Something you lost in your past that you're still holding on to? Something you're losing right now that you want to hang on to? Nothing we lose isn't replaced. Everything we lose is replaced by the glory of God. We receive Christ in our moments of joy and in our moments of suffering. He comes to us in those moments, not just the good moments, not just the moments of celebration, but Christ comes to us in our deepest longing and suffering when we experience our greatest loss. And he gives us a sense of hope about the future, but also a sense of humility. Let's pray.